You're listening to Bloom in Tech with David Bloom. This podcast sponsored by Fabric Media in Venice, California. Hey everybody, I'm David Bloom and welcome back to Bloom in Tech. I sat down this week with Alexis Denisoff, who's one of the stars of I Love Becca and Lucy, a sweet episodic comedy from the Warner Brothers Digital Network, Stage 13. The show was created, directed, and written by Rachel Holder, whom I think is a real up-and-comer, and it stars Jessica Parker Kennedy and Tanisha Long as two really sweet roommates who are just, they kind of are in love with each other a little bit, but someone comes along and stirs things up and changes their lives. That person is played by Denisoff as the wheelchair-bound Glenn, who is both neighbor to roomies Becca and Lucy and eventually a love interest for one of them. For his work, Alexis has been nominated for his first ever Emmy for Outstanding Actor in a Short-Form Comedy or Drama Series. If Alexis's name and face seem familiar, it's probably because you've seen him in goodness knows how many movies and TV shows over the years. He's probably best known for starring as Wesley Wyndham Price in 100 of the 110 episodes of Angel, the spinoff from Buffy the Vampire Slayer, after a short but popular run on Buffy. All of that entrenched him firmly in creator Joss Whedon's universe. He since has been in a string of other Whedon projects, from Shakespeare remakes to Star Trek. He's been in Guardians of the Galaxy and the Avengers and had a notable recurring role in How I Met Your Mother. In other words, Alexis has been around. For Buffy fans, Alexis is something of royalty. Not only does he have his own long run on Angel to his credit, he's also married to Allison Hannigan, with whom he has two children. She also starred in How I Met Your Mother. In this conversation, we covered a lot of ground in his career, what his role on I Love Becca and Lucy has been like, preparing for a role when he's confined to a wheelchair, what it means to be nominated for an Emmy after his long career in TV, and much else. It was a great conversation with a gracious and charming fellow who's getting some recognition. Please give a listen. I noticed that you grew up on the East Coast, right? Well, I was born yes, I was born in Maryland on the eastern shore of the Chesapeake. Then I actually had a, a good chunk of time in Seattle in my elementary school years. Then back to the East Coast for boarding school in New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. So, oh, where yeah, did you go? Where did you school? St. Paul's okay. in uh, Concord, New Hampshire. Uh, and mm-hmm. and then after that, I moved abroad. I lived in, in London for for many years. Right. I studied studied over there. Yeah, I know you. Uh, what was it? Was it wasn't the Royal Academy? It was a fairly uh, upscale. It was, it was a well-regarded dramatic it, place. Thank you. you it's it's similar. It's called the London Academy of Music and uh, and Dramatic Art is the full title of it, but it shortens to Lambda. And then uh, I loved classical theater, so I, I felt very lucky to join the Royal Shakespeare Company when I left college, and and that was really my first theater job. And uh, and then yeah, from there, that's sort of, that's not bad. <laughs> I know, pretty great. That's like um, that's like getting out of college and going to work for Saturday Night Live or something. I mean, yeah, I guess so. Know, yeah, for much, a, for a theater actor, yeah, definitely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, well, it doesn't get any better than the Royal Shakespeare Company. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, either yes, that or good luck. I, you know, now now I start to. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy with either, whether it's a good fortune or a little talent. But somehow we, uh, right. you know, you piece it all together. But yeah, those were. Those were good years. I, I learned a lot. I was lucky to be exposed to 
wonderful actors and directors during that time and, and uh, you know, tried to hang on to some of the, some of the ideas that, uh, that inspired me. So, you, yeah, you did a lot of work with the Shakespeare Company, and uh, uh, even more recently, I, I noticed that you had done the Much Ado About Nothing, the Joss Whedon, your spirit animal, uh, right. the film film that he did, and you've done you've done a lot of uh, fairly Hamlets uh, with Mark. I did Hamlet with Mark Rylance and some mm-hmm. things like that, some very Tony stuff. And then you became a spirit yourself, or sort of something like that, I guess, in Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Angel. That must have been a bit of right. a head whip at some, in some ways. What was that like for you? Yes, I suppose it was, really. Um, that was one of the uh, fir- you know, first things I, I booked coming to L.A., and I didn't know anything about that show, although it was in, Buffy was in its third season at the time, but I was mm-hmm. a newcomer to L.A., and the show wasn't airing in, in England, so my first impression was, geez, what a strange name for a show, but I was sent a couple of, believe it or not, videotapes, if you recall what those there were. Yes, uh, that, that's what oh, was I'm around old, dude. 19, <laughs> 1998, and uh, I mean, I was hooked right away. I just, I love the humor and the insight and the, the kind of metaphor allegory aspect, and so, and that character, although it was initially intended for two episodes, it ended up, he ended up sticking around for the rest of that season, that third season of Buffy and and then I was uh, spun off into the offshoot Angel and, uh, and, yeah. and stayed there for the remainder of, of that show. He did 100 episodes with Angel. So you are, and, and I think it's worth mentioning that you're married to Allison Hannigan, who was uh, another key part of that show. So you're kind of like Buffy Angel royalty in a lot of ways. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, I uh, would have. Would have very kind interpretation. I mean, clearly I have an awful lot to thank Joss and that show for. Chief among them, I would uh, say, is finding my wife and the mother of my children. Um, but yeah, we we struck up a friendship right away and, and actually started dating once I was off Buffy and working on Angel. And then the challenge was just getting time together. Um, right. Anybody who's worked on a one-hour show uh, knows how hard those hours are, but if you add the fact that they're both vampire shows, basically that means a lot of shooting at night out on location mm-hmm. and um, long, long days and fight scenes. And this is before CGI, so everything had to be done practically. So it just took a long time. Yeah, so, and then you have to clean up after you get a, a stake in the heart. It takes a while. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you got to clean up and get reset and and do it all again. But of course, the, it was a crack team, and everybody got real good at doing it quickly and. Well, it was in that world that our relationship found its way, and uh, so we always have a real fondness for those years, I should say, since that's where our life, our sort of life journey together started. Tell me a little bit, because you had this very, I I guess, as traditional as it gets, the Royal Shakespeare Company and uh, the London Academy and uh, all that, that's that's as, as old school, I mean, by hundreds of years old school as dramatic training and early work gets. And then you come and you do a broadly popular if cult hit on American TV and carve a space in American fans' minds and hearts. That alone must be sort of an interesting shift for you, given your classical training. Yes, I think that's a good observation. It certainly, there was certainly an adjustment technically um, from anybody 
going from theater to TV, you, you, you need to make some adjustments and learn some of the technicalities of it. It's interesting, though. I, in a funny way, uh, if you look closely, I, I don't. There are some real similarities between Joss's work and and and, the, and classic tales. I mean, the stories of Shakespeare are way out there. Um, oh, you just yeah. look at the nuts and bolts of, of what he's building on. You know, they're every bit as fantastical as, as an episode of Buffy or Angel. So he created a language of his own, um, it, which you, you know, you could certainly argue now that maybe Shakespeare didn't reinvent English. But, but as we approach it now, you sort of have to learn Shakespeare's English. So, you know, I learned Joss's English. And um, so all, some of those things gave me a comfort. In a, in a way, and then there was building the character, which, which I had a lot of a lot of fun with. I've always been attracted to. I've always liked the challenge of, of new types of character. I suppose really I'm a character actor. It's all said and done. So I like the challenge of creating a something I haven't created before, and I like the evolution of a character. And I think what I didn't know going into that show was what an extraordinary journey that character would take. I don't think anybody, I don't think the writers or Joss or anybody was expecting for that evolution, but it, it sort of became possible as, the, as, as they wrote their way through it and as we found things to look at it and uh, kind of inspired each other from, from on set to the writer's room and the writer's room back to the set. And uh, sure. so to go through, to have the How time, the luxury of time to evolve, that, I think that's the greatest gift, other than finding yeah. my life. That's the greatest gift that that show gave me. What was that journey? How would you describe where it started, where that character started, and where that character ended? Wesley Wyndham Price was very much a, a, created as a foil, uh, an irritant. Um, come in briefly, um, irritate a couple of the favorites on Buffy, Giles, the original Watcher, and Buffy herself, and attempt to disrupt and uproot and generally upset them. Um, and and I, I think the layer I gave him was a sort of a, a sort of a brittle shell with a rather with a rather soft inside, and that that allowed for a lot of comedy. So he comes on strong, but he folds rather quickly. So we started to find a lot of fun in that, and that's that's why in that season three, it, it was always fun to pop Wesley into a scene because he could do something. Um, annoying, bothersome, and then end up being hoisted uh, by his own petard, as it were, and that was always that was always a lot of fun. As he shifted into Angel, and Joss and I discussed that move, we we agreed that he you know he had to find a stronger center and have some sort of immediate uh, evolution before joining the show, because um, it would be hard to understand why why he would fit in. So we sort of took that it was possible that there was a time lapse and Wesley could start with some some more miles under the hood, as it were, in the in the world of demon fighting. So when he arrives, he's still recognizable as that silly Wesley, but he's got a little more a little more grit about him, albeit external. And then as the show evolves through the seasons, you see that, that all of that become becomes internalized gradually and all of that grit and determination and the, and the suffering becomes internalized and he sheds so much of his pompous exterior and becomes something of a dark and mysterious character himself until coming full, full circle into what I would describe as almost an anti-hero. And I think, uh, you know, there was a pivotal conversation with Joss and I after a couple of years of the show where we sort of agreed that was the character stuck and, you know, were we going to leave him stuck or could could he, could he we find a way to move him on? And if we weren't going to move him on, 
you know, was he surplus to requirement and would you rather just kind of find some new characters and write, write him out of the show? Cause it didn't feel like, like he was, you know, he wasn't staying challenging and interesting. And, and Joss really, when you get to that season three, uh, he really uh, takes it on as a challenge and, and starts to, starts to work with the character in this wonderfully slow payoff that takes several years, but is, but is extraordinary. Well, I don't want to spend too much time on this, so I am sort of interested. Out of all of that, out of that long run and that interesting journey, you have become, you're a bit of, a, as, as uh, Buffy's angel royalty, uh, how does it feel to be a Comic-Con star? Because you do that. Oh. <laughs> I have gone to the, the Comic-Con. Yeah, in the context of Angel, I think we've made a visit. And then maybe with Avengers or Guardians. Uh, I can't remember what the last appearance was now exactly. but And I've done uh, a few conventions. Uh, it's always wonderful to meet fans and people that get really interested in one one particular character that maybe I've worked on are, are, are then get excited to find out that there are these other things that they didn't, you know, you don't always realize was me. So yeah, those are great events. I mean, I think genre fantasy sci-fi uh, is such a wonderful opportunity for storytelling. The writers get a chance to process all sorts of things that are hard to talk about on the nose. Uh, the audience gets the chance to relate to whatever degree they want to issues around race, gender, sexual orientation, uh, you, you name it. I mean, there are all sorts of, you know, look, Star Trek started this, didn't it, with this idea that, hey, yeah. we could talk about this thing in outer space that's actually happening in our society right now, but we call them aliens or we call them dribbles or whatever, you know, whatever you want to call yeah, them. Yeah. That's a powerful tool, and I've always loved that. Um, you know, I'm reading Harry Potter to my daughter right now. She's nine, my old, eldest right. daughter, and... Perfect page. Um, she's a great reader, and I love reading to her, and I was read to as a kid, and it's just, you know, it's so wonderful to see how she takes these fantastical storylines and makes them vivid and real for herself and how meaningful they are, and I think it's the thing that ties us all together, really, uh, uh, you know, not to get too grandiose here, but, you know, human, the legacy of human humans is stories. We are linked by a long, long legacy of storytelling, and it's very hard to go back and figure out what the first one was, but as long as anybody can remember, we've been telling each other stories. I think the, those conventions, Comic-Con, and many of them are really celebrating that. When you see the, that, that celebration and the tolerance and the kindness and the uh, it's okay to be different, and difference doesn't mean intolerance, that's a, that's a nice place to be. Yeah, I was at the last Comic Con a month ago, and uh, I'm proud to say I'm still alive and almost functioning a month later. <laughs> yeah, that's a big you know, one. I, that is a big yeah, one. Yeah, yeah, it's a big one. I uh, I took my kids to one I don't know, 15 years ago, and it was a considerably smaller show. Still big, still lots of people going on, but it has yeah. just gotten so much bigger, and all the brands have gotten involved, and now they've moved out into the gas lamp district across the road with all these activations, as the marketing people like to call it, for various shows yeah. and brands and stuff. And they're We'll think that in particular as, as kind of uh, you know, maybe the crown and the jewel of comic conventions. I, for, yeah. You know, for me, I still... If I get the time, I always want to walk the floor and see what the artists are doing. Um, cause yeah, that, that's where I where, where I get kind of turned on and think it's so cool. Yeah. And of course, the toys are great too, so I always walk the the merch. But um, and the cosplay. Yeah. So, 
but that one for sure studios and networks have figured out what a great place that is to market and launch yeah. but there are so many of these now i feel like every city town country is kind of figuring out their own version of it and they all in their own sense they all work there's certainly not all the model of comic-con of the san diego one in particular you know that that's that's a really that's a big ship uh it's a different thing yeah that's <laughs> yeah, a different thing yeah 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 I mean, I moderated two panels down there, and, and uh, yeah, you yeah. get 500 people in a room. It's like, holy crap. <laughs> and that was a small room, I mean, compared to, like, you know, the thing that was going on a day later with Matt Groening and his new animated show is going to be on Netflix and all and thousands of people in there. And it's like, it oh. is. It's staggering. I mean, it's thrilling. I Absolutely right. You can step out there, and the, there's a hall filled with 3,000 people, and you, you sort of have to – it takes your breath away. Yeah. Uh, you yeah. suddenly think, oh, geez, I better come up with something really either clever or funny or both to say here because uh, there's a lot yeah. of people at this panel. <laughs> right, I <laughs> got to bring the, it. Man. That's the power of the that's the power of the of the medium of TV and film and, and in particular this corner of storytelling that's that's fantasy and genre and sci-fi. I want to mention in passing, you had a recurring role in How I Met Your Mother, which also featured uh, your your now wife. And you've done a lot of other work, but I think that we want to get now to the the thing that you're doing now that has gotten you your first Emmy nomination. First of all, it is for a relatively new category. So can you tell me the category because it's it's easy to botch it. I'd rather have you botch it. Yeah, no, and it's it's a mouthful. (laughs) So I've been thrilled to Say I've been nominated for Outstanding Actor in Short Form Comedy or Drama. So that that boils down to, you know, that's not going to be your one-hour TV or your, you know, Deadwood on or the Netflix or the HBO's long-running 45-minute episode series. This is for shorter form. Yeah, it's less so than 15-minute episodes, right? Recurring right. episodes. Exactly. But, but Recurring episodes, yep. Yeah. Yeah, and they, an and they, and it's a spectrum. I mean, uh, I'm particularly proud of ours. Um, it's called I Love Becca and Lucy. I mean, there's a lot of things to be proud of, but I think uh, Warner Brothers Digital created this platform, Stage13.com, which is uh, both a both a generator of content and distributor of it, and they are attempting to make programming for new voices uh, and distribute it for a broad audience, a multicultural audience. So their slate is all is all over the place. You've got music documentary. You've got one of them's called, uh, I think, Two Sentence Horror Stories. That's short little scary tales. Um, ours, which is a really sweet, heartwarming story that unfolds over the course of a, about an hour and a half, but it, but it breaks into these standalone segments of 10, 12, 13 minutes that are that completely hold their own and leave you wanting to come back. And, and it's in the case of ours, it is, it is high production value. I mean, it looks beautiful. It, it, it premiered at South by Southwest. It was included for the first time ever a, a digital series was included in their, in their television segment of the film festival. And that was a, a great honor for anybody streaming a show on the web in short form. However, short form also includes sketch comedy and monologue to camera and whatever you could think of as long as it's in that, in that time frame. So the, so the content um, is, is very from one example to another. I think it's it's good to note. I was really, uh, you know, full disclosure, I, I emceed a uh, four-year consideration event with where you and I first met about two months ago that Stage 13 put on to showcase 
three other shows, including I, uh, I Love Becca and Lucy. I was uh, entertained that we were able to do that on the actual set where the original I Love Lucy was right. um, was was done every week with Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz, and as they were busy redoing TV. And the point that I made then was that you know they are credited with creating a whole new business, which was of syndicated uh, TV. You know they were recording and and keeping the recordings of the things that they shot. They were doing it in Hollywood because it was close to where they were, and she was having a baby. They did they did a whole bunch of stuff. And now we have I Love Back on Lucy and some of the things that Stage 13 and a lot of other companies are trying to do, creating this short-form content. We just saw Jeffrey Katzenberg announce he's raised a billion dollars to do premium short-form video, which is stuff that will be eventually, presumably, competing with the stuff that you guys do. But I have to say that, you know, the stuff that you guys do, I mean, the writing, um, I'm I'm blanking out on the creator's name, but she is uh, just a spectacularly talented writer. I was really... I impressed by a lot of really smart, funny, warm uh, writing in that show. Uh, what, what's oh her no, name? you're you're totally you're absolutely right on there. Yes, so her name is Rachel Holder, and 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 yes, and by the way, thank you for moderating that event. That was terrific fun, and and I suppose in some ways I have you to thank for this amazing uh, nomination. <laughs> you gave our show another another platform for people to find out about it, and it's not easy. Uh, there's such a proliferation of content, and while it's high production value, there's there ain't really a, a PR budget per se. So we rely on, on people spreading it word of mouth. But to your point, Rachel Holder, wonderful, talented, and she would uh, describe herself growing up, African-American girl, not seeing herself on TV represented, decided to do something about it when she became a writer. And here we have this story, two girls of color, best friends, kind of going through the challenges that come when one or both of them find their other partner in life, their their spouse, and how the pressures that puts on the, on the friendship. And it is primarily a story about friendship, but within that, a curious love, a love affair uh, begins. Um, it's looking in a warm and tolerant way at, uh, at the, these differences that we talked a little bit about in terms of race, in terms of age. Uh, my character, for example, um, lives with a disability. He's in a wheelchair. So um, there are a lot of opportunities uh, for the characters in the show to experience their bias and for the audience to to look at theirs without it being, you know, pounded over your head. This is not a diatribe or a lecture. It's just saying, hey, we're in a world that there's a lot of social change going on. And what does that feel like? And and how do we how do we connect through difference? And I think if the show if I could, if I had one thing that I love, and there's so many things I love about this show, but um, I really love the kindness and tolerance that roots this show, um, and that ultimately anyone can connect with another person despite their differences, and ultimately we can celebrate them. Uh, I think the show um, holds that up. It is interesting because we have a lot of things going on in there. I mean, you've got two young black women just living their lives. I think one of the things that's so nice about it is just. You know, it's another kind of everyday little sweet two friends comedy in a lot of ways. Yeah. But the sheer normalcy of it is feels weirdly revolutionary. And then you're there as the neighbor who older white male in a wheelchair. Yeah. Right. Very right. different kind universe. Of, <laughs> very different universe. And and our universes collide. I mean, um, it's established right at the outset that these girls are in a splendid isolation. They are perfectly happy and self-sufficient. They are not looking for 
men. They're not looking for anything other than what they've got. And I think um, immediately you're introduced to the authentic voice of Rachel and how raw and truthful and authentic her writing is because, you know, it's these girls are funny and they are intelligent and sassy and honest with each other and, and getting that under the skin look right away. And that, that really carries us throughout. So when you meet me, my character, Glenn, as you have said, he's, uh, and he's socially uh, awkward for sure and undoubtedly intrusive. And then, uh, and then it's revealed that he's in a, a wheelchair and uh, that causes them all sorts of like, oh, no, wait, I, what do we do now? We were going to, we, you know, do we have, now do we have to be nice to him because he's got this disability? Uh, or, you know, I mean, it brings up a lot of funny kind of um, issues for them. As, as Rachel has said, if the girls were white, the neighbor would have been black, right? So she's trying to look at this stuff through, through a lens, but ultimately uh, it is it's honest and it's funny. And uh, I think this character that she initially created as a disruptive force, um, when we get under his skin, there, he is such a, he's, there's so many other things to him. And it's, and it's his kind of open, courageous heart that ultimately turns the story and changes it into something quite different. Um, and, and ultimately into a love story. So I love the script the moment I read it. And then when the cast and the, came together and, the, and Rachel was directing her own work, which was great because she had such an intimate knowledge of it. And we had an incredible TP and, um, and it just really, it was one of those ones that comes together and you can just feel it as soon as you're in the scene, you can feel the stuff flying off the page. And, and uh, we just found ourselves, I mean, there were takes where we had to stop because we were laughing so hard at each other and at the scene, at the, at the scenarios that were going on. And, and you know, it's hard, hard to do that with just character and story. We are in a climate where uh, we still are watching programming where a weapon is the solution. Uh, we're still in a, we have this new ability now with CGI to have almost anything extraordinary happen that is almost unthinkable in real life. But for media, you don't, you don't think twice to see the San Andreas Fault open up and swallow LA or, uh, you know, a green-eyed dragon appear from a, a cloud behind the sun. I mean, anything's possible now. So to just root this in two girls' friendships and how they're navigating their life and have it be compelling and funny and compulsive. And this got taken up by the audience. I mean, they people are emailing links to this show saying, you got to watch this. I think that's the power of this form, of this short form. You it becomes a, in a way, a, a trading piece that you can give out to your friends through social media. Because who's gonna, who's gonna, you're not gonna, you're not gonna send me a link to Mission Impossible Four. I know it's out there. I'll catch in the movies or I'll whatever. Yeah, I mean every pen, yeah. every penny that that they had for this show is 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 on the screen, and the rest is we rely on people um, seeing it and tweeting it and sending it to their friends. And out of that, we've had millions of viewers. So I think that speaks to Rachel's voice, how timely it is and how ready people are to, and look, there's nothing wrong with having fun with special effects. I, I'm the last person to complain about that. Given my career, I, I'm simply making the point that there is room for just good writing, good storytelling, characters that you care about, mm -hmm. um, and, and the simplicity and the time to spend just a few minutes with them.
I think this show leaves you feeling better. You watch it and you feel like there's hope in the world that we can make a difference. That I, I love that. I like to I like to feel that way uh, when I finish watching something. I don't like to feel frightened and worried about the future of the planet or worried that my children are are uh, going to be sucked down the vortex of social media. This this show is a wonderful antidote to, to many of the current concerns. Now, I, I do find it interesting and, and would like you to address the process you went through as a uh, uh, abled person. I think that's the term that is now used who is performing as a differently abled person. There has been a lot of conversation in trans people wanting to be playing the trans roles and things like that. I mean, gay people playing gay roles, so on and so forth. How did you deal? Were there, were there issues raised by the, the community of folks dealing with the physical handicaps? How did you deal with that? Did you, how did you prepare for the role? How did you work with all that? Yeah, excellent. I'm glad you, I'm glad you're bringing this in. For sure. I, I had to th- think a little bit. I had to pause myself um, because and ask myself, well, hang on a second. I've been offered this, but is there a, an actor who actually lives in a wheelchair that, that, I'm, that I'm taking this job away from? Uh, and, you know, finally, if I make that concession on every job I'm offered, I could certainly never work and give everything up because there's probably somebody that's always closer to any role. And there are so many things that make up a character. In the case of this character, yes, he has a spinal cord injury, and yes, there are actors with spinal cord injuries, but he is more than his injury and more than his wheelchair, and you have to look at the character as a whole and and from the casting perspective, the the director, writer, the producers, the casting director, they need to bring all of that together in a holistic way to fulfill all of the demands of the character, not simply whether it ticks the box of a physically able or a person with a, with a disability. But I took it very seriously. I will say that I immediately, when we knew we were going to do this, um, I felt that that was my first task was to really honor that. And I did a significant amount of research, um, visiting hospitals and rehab clinics and calling the Veterans Association and talking to doctors and um, uh, finding people and just interviewing them on the spot if they were kind enough to speak with me, if they were living with a spinal cord injury. I found some wonderful resources. If I could take a minute, I do want to mention Global Mobility. David Richard uh, runs an incredible uh, charitable organization that collects used wheelchairs, and he ships them by the container load to uh, developing countries where wheelchairs are not commonly available, and um, children who don't have the use of their legs, or more, or even perhaps more than that, are ultimately, once their parents or siblings, can't, if once they get too big to be carried around, are more or less living on the ground, living on the floor. And so these chairs give them independence, and that was very powerful. He made a, a, a chair for me and taught me a little bit about it. And then another wonderful mentor was this guy, uh, Dominic, from ExtremeAbilities.com, who spent time at my house just teaching me. Uh, he lives in a chair, teaching me all the mechanics, the in and out, the washing, the cooking, the how do you get, how do you manage the car, how do you, and, and then he's just talking, you know, uh, talking about his life. He's an extraordinary athlete. So those were foundational for me as far as the character was just coming to terms with the nature of the injury, the nature of how to transform my body, how to become extremely comfortable in the chair. I can't stand it when you 
watch a program and you know damn well that at the end of the scene you're going to see that actor pop up out of out of their wheelchair or pop up out of their whatever and go off and and have cut you know okay right okay. gotta go to up the craft table and, I'll be back. Yeah, with you. so I really, I really tried to, really tried to get, have it be second nature. So I went everywhere with the chair in my car and did as much in and out and doing things, um, do the shopping with the wheelchair, grocery, cooking. You know, my house isn't geared for it, so it was tough. The countertops are high, and there are stairs here and there that if I really were in a chair, I would certainly be modifying that. Um, the world changes once you start seeing it from that perspective, and um, that was, that was great for me. I remember the first read through, I hadn't met anybody yet. Uh, we were all getting together in Hollywood to read the script before starting shooting. And I thought, and I'd been working with the chair for, I was like, well, if I were this guy, I'd be going there in the chair. So I, I did, I got myself uh, into the car, drove with the chair, got out of the car and the chair wheeled up the steep Hollywood Hill, uh, found the place and oh Lord, 12 steps. So I knew there was no way I could wheel up them. I pulled out, pulled myself out of the chair and, you know, scooted backwards, uh, stair by stair, pulling the chair with me, which is pretty much what you'd have to do. And then only to find out I was at the wrong address. Huh. Uh, so, <laughs> so I got back down, back into the chair, back out on the street, found the house, and it had this lovely ramp from the street right up to the front door. But I do think that... To go back to your original point, it's a question of access. You know, ultimately the casting process is the casting process, and there are a lot of factors that go into casting. But if the process is open and equitable and inclusive, then that is, that's what we're seeking as an industry across the board. And that relates to uh, people with disabilities, uh, people of color, people of uh, sexual orientation differences, uh, you know, every, every conceivable difference is making the door open so that, so that uh, people of all shapes, sizes, colors get the opportunity to win, win the part. And then after that, it's really a creative decision. I don't think you can carry that so far through to say, well, this person isn't actually this, so we can't use them. Because by that rubric, you'd be, you, what could you, there are a lot of things you, the writers can no longer write because there are simply things that are impossible to cast. I mean, you know, I, I mean, that Alpha Centauri person that has to play in the role. I mean, you've got to get a Thanos to play Thanos, is, I guess. You know what I'm saying? Right. Where do you, yeah. that, that logic, that's not the, lo that, that's not the answer, right? But, no. but access right. is, and I think that that's, um, I think that's, sure. you know, embedded into your question, which I'm glad you're yes. asking is, you know, can, can we all um, work towards equality of access? And that's a, that's a industry wide effort yes. and the, the people with disabilities and the people without them need to work on that together. It's a, that, that's a holistic effort. So what are you working on? Becca and Lucy, I think has gotten a second season. Is that right? We are, they're in the sort of creative phase right now. Okay. And the, that's the other cool thing about short form is, you know, it kind of asks the question, is there, is there another version? I know there's one, uh, another show on this on st at stage 13 that they're looking at a possibility of a, of a film out of it. In our case, they're looking at other versions of it. Is it, is, does it want to go to long form? Can it sustain? Is it perfect as is? And we keep making them in this short 
form manner. So that's the fun and flexibility of short form is that it gives you a chance to come in and, and work with a story, work with characters, get a look at something and then see how, what its best fit is without, without the huge price tag of like, okay, we made a $50 million movie or we've, all right, we've commissioned season one of a one hour show and it's going to cost us X millions and millions of dollars and it didn't work. Uh, short form really gives you a, a test tube for your, for your show. And in the case of Becca and Lucy, been, it's been such a smash that I think, the, in a way, the hard part is what couldn't it be? Because you could take each episode and, and stretch them out to 30 or 42 minutes. So I think that right now, it's not so much a question of if, but more what will season two look like? You know, in the sense of what's the shape of yeah. it? What, what are we writing towards? Are we, are we still writing towards the... 10 to 13 minutes or are we writing towards a longer format but it's um, exciting i i think it i really feel like it earned it you know it was a labor of love it looks beautiful but don't get me wrong i was sitting in my car between scenes you know there was not we were on location roughing it and everybody brought their a game and uh, just worked really hard and did their best possible work to make it beautiful but it was a it was a, a tough shoot that everybody was part of because we believed so much in Rachel's script. It was such a beautiful, powerful, authentic story, so touching, and and it was so right for now. Uh, so I feel like everybody involved deserves more. They deserve the, the chance to, to do more and better. Uh, I hope we get it. Well, Alexis, thank you so much. Again, it's Alexis Denisoff. He is up for a Emmy uh, nomination. Uh, I guess these will all get primetime Emmy nomination. This will all get resolved uh, in about a month, six weeks, something like that. Voting is, I think, uh, right around the corner if it's not already begun. For uh, it's begun. Voting stuff. is open. Yeah, yeah. If you can uh, vote, um, check us out. Uh, outstanding actor in short form comedy or drama, and um, it's a check out the category and and see what you think. Obviously, I would love to have your vote. You've been listening to Bloom in Tech. I am your host, David Bloom. Thanks so much. And our podcast has been sponsored in this episode by Fabric Media in Venice, California. Take care, everyone.